When we think about the universe when it was first born, everything was hot, dense, and full of matter and radiation. It was incredibly uniform, and there were no structures like we know today. There were no galaxies, no galaxy clusters, no stars, no planets, not even neutral atoms or stable atomic nuclei. But as time went on, the universe expanded and cooled and gravitated. And not only did we start to form nuclei and atoms, and then eventually gas clouds that collapsed into stars, that grew into star clusters, that grew into galaxies, that grew into galaxy clusters, but this came along with a whole host of interesting things like dark matter, like second and third and fourth generation stars that began to have planets around them with complex chemistry, and eventually the ingredients for life. But how do we learn how we went from that early stage to this modern, structure-rich stage? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. The cosmic story of how we grew up is a story that's shared by us all. When we look out at the universe today, we see it full of galaxies of a wide variety of shapes, sizes, morphologies, and stellar contents. We see these galaxies grouped together and clustered together. Some of them are isolated, some of them come like the Milky Way in small groups of a few large members and a few dozen small members, but others come in rich clusters of thousands upon thousands of large galaxies. And here to help us make sense of it all, I'm so pleased to welcome to the show astronomer Dr. Mireya Montez. She is a postdoctoral research associate at Space Telescope Science Institute, and I'm so happy to welcome her to the show. Mireya, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to, um, you know, talk with you in this podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased to have you. You know, I... I first became aware of your research because of this fascinating paper that you you wrote on uh, intracluster light in galaxy clusters, and that was the first time that I that I saw this research, and I went, "Whoa! I didn't know you'd be able to do that." Right? When you look at a galaxy cluster. You typically expect, you know, if you're naive like I am, you typically expect that the light from that galaxy cluster is going to come from the individual stars that are present in the individual galaxies. But as it turns out, that's not the only form of light that happens. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, you can look in the X-ray and you can find like hot gas that heated up because of, you know, gas moving around or shocks or anything like that. No, this is totally separate. This is intracluster light. What is going on to create light in the galaxy clusters but between those galaxies? So the intracluster light, it's formed by, by stars that are not um, bound to any galaxy, but just float around in the, in, the, in the galaxy cluster. So these stars come from, uh, you know, interactions between the galaxies in the cluster. So, you know, um, because it is a dense environment, you know, like in the sense of, you know, in the, in, in the galaxy sense of uh, dense, so um, 
Star, uh, galaxies there um, in, uh, suffer encounters, so they interact gravitationally. And some of the stars get ripped from the, from the galaxies, from the, their host galaxies, and end up just floating around. And, this, and you know, these stars form this very diffuse light, which is kind of difficult to see. So it's one of the things that we, we knew that it existed, from the uh, early war from Zwicky from the 1930s. Um, but now with, you know, like all the advances in telescopes and, and data processing, we are able to study in, in more and more galaxy, uh, galaxy clusters. Right. So, so it sounds like what's happening is, look, you know, when you start out, yeah, you have all these galaxies and they're gravitationally bound together. But these galaxies, they also interact with each other. If I imagine two galaxies getting very close to one another, they're going to have what we call tidal interactions between them, where the part of each galaxy that's closer to the nearby galaxy, it's going to experience a stronger gravitational interaction than the part farther away. And the parts that are on one side, say the north side versus the south side of the galaxy, they're going to experience different forces, even if they're the same distance away, because those forces are going to point in slightly different directions. So this results in a force that that I think of uh, as being a spaghettifying force, because it, it takes galaxies and it stretches them along the direction into like a thin line that the other gravitational source the other galaxy is located on so over time as these galaxies move around this can cause new stars to form because when you make gas denser it's going to trigger star formation but it can also cause what we call gas stripping it can cause these gas and these new stars to be kicked out of the galaxies that they began in so are you saying that that's the origin of this intracluster light is you had this matter that was once part of one of these galaxies but that matter it collapses, it forms new stars, but it can also get stripped out of these galaxies and thrown into the intracluster medium, thrown into the medium between galaxies inside a galaxy cluster, and that's where this intracluster light is coming from. So in, inside clusters, uh, the galaxies in the cluster are normally already um, devoid of, of, of the gas to form stars, because of the hot gas that you mentioned before. The, the, this, this light comes the, the, from the stars that are in the galaxy that um, get you know, stripped by these um, gravitational forces. So we expect some kind of formation of stars in, you know, in, in the space between the galaxies, but uh, most of, the, of these stars, they come from the galaxy. So they, for, they form in the, in the galaxy, but um, they, they got stripped from the galaxy. So, so the situation I described might apply more to galaxies that we see, you know, in the field, galaxies not in clusters that we see like two or more galaxies interacting. But once the galaxy's in a cluster, you're saying it, it typically, they lose their gas really fast. They form their stars really fast. So the stars we see 
in an established galaxy cluster in that intracluster light. These are older stars. They're stars that get stripped out of the galaxy by these tidal interactions, but they're not stars that generally formed from gas in there. They're stars that were already there. It's just that these gravitational tidal interactions kick them out, and that's how they got into the intracluster medium. Exactly. Perfect, perfect. So when we observe this, we don't just say like, aha, there's light here, isn't that great? We can actually use that intracluster light to learn a tremendous amount about these objects and how they formed. How, how can the light that we observe teach us about these objects and what do we learn by making these observations? So there are like, um, when I studied intracluster light, I studied two things, right? I studied, you know, how this intracluster line forms because it gives us, because it, as it comes from, you know, the interactions between galaxies in the cluster, it tells us about, um, you know, the, 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 the history of formation of this uh, cluster of galaxies. So I study uh, this, where it comes from, uh, and to do that, uh, I use the colors of, the, of this light. Uh, depending on, on if it's bluer or redder, it tells us uh, uh, um, information about, you know, the stars, um, the quantity of metals of, um, of these stars, and that tells us, you know, about the progenitors of, of this light, you know, the, gal the galaxies where these uh, stars come, uh, come from. And that, you know, like putting this together gives us a picture of what happened uh, in the cluster. Interesting. So, so when you say you're looking at the clusters, I'm sorry, when you're looking yeah. at the colors of this light in the cluster, um, I, I think of color as, oh, okay, well, if I have a lot of uh, violet and ultraviolet light, then that tells me that I either have a lot of new stars forming or I have something happening where the gas is being superheated and then it's cascading down the energy levels when the electrons find their ions again and, uh, and you get these series of lines. Uh, when you observe the intracluster light, what type of light, what are the colors that you see and what do we learn from it? Uh, so what I use is uh, something that is called the spectral energy distribution of the of the of the stars. Uh, so I use a lot of filters uh, at different wavelengths and and construct this um, you know spectral energy distribution. And it gives you know like depending on the color, it um, you can have like younger stars that are more you know like towards the blue, or uh, older stars that are more redder. And also it has it tells you about the quantity, the quantity of metals. So, for example, if you have like a, a, star, a star that formed in a larger galaxy, in a more massive galaxy, you have, in general, you know, in, in on average, you have more metals in, in that star. So, basically, tracing the colors, it tells uh, it tells you about you know like it, this came this came from a. Um, more massive galaxy from a less massive galaxy. The the, the um, you know the the star formed, bef you know like it's younger, it's older. Um, that means that you know like the the, uh, the it formed like just before it, it got stripped from the from the galaxy, or or it was longer there. You know there are all these 
uh, scenarios that um, you can constrain by studying, you know, like these um, colors. So just by looking at the colors of the light and saying like, okay, we're going to look in a bunch of different wavelength bands and see how much ultraviolet, blue, uh, green, yellow, red, infrared, etc. If we if we look at the different ways that the energy is distributed, that tells us a couple of important things about the population of stars. It tells us how old the stars are, because if if we let more time go by, you know, we we typically expect when you form a new burst of stars, um, we, we've seen enough stars over our, you know, over the careers of thousands of astronomers that we say, okay, typically when you form stars, here's how the light is distributed for a newborn group or cluster of stars. Um, and then as it ages, you notice that the bluer stars, the hottest stars, uh, the most massive stars, they die the most quickly. So the stars that are left behind are preferentially cooler and redder and lower in mass. So by measuring the light, it makes sense that you can determine their age. Now, you also mention metals. And, you know, to an astronomer, a metal is any element heavier than helium. So you have hydrogen and helium, and then everything else combined is a metal. Uh, but what metals are in astrophysics is, look, the universe was born almost exclusively with hydrogen and helium. Everything heavier than that, everything that we call a metal, was formed in stars at some point. So if you have a more metal-rich galaxy versus a metal-poor galaxy, you have a star that's been enriched, more significantly enriched, by processing, by previous generations of stars that have lived and died and returned their material back to the interstellar medium. So how can we infer the amount of metals in you know in a galaxy or galaxy cluster just by looking at this starlight just by looking at the light that's the advantage of, of using these uh, multiple uh, bands you know like not only only one color but using more bands and especially using the the, the infrared because um, the the thing is that when when a star has met more metals, it also becomes becomes redder in like the optical bands. So that's that's why it's important to um, have the near infrared because it can um, help you to um, to basically uncouple between the age and the and the quantity of metals instead of like having oh this is red I don't know if it's old or if it's more metallic. You have um, you know like basically you you can distinguish between these two things, between the, the age and the metallicity. Okay. And so is this something that you can even do without spectroscopy, without taking that light and breaking it up into the individual wavelengths just by looking at the photometric light, just by looking at a, a large, you know, a larger band that you can say, you know, actually just by doing photometry, we can learn about the metal content of these galaxies or this galaxy cluster? Yes, the thing is that it's more complicated because of course you have like lar uh, larger um, uncertainties, so it's a little bit less accurate. But if you have like a, um, um, a wavelength, what we call a wavelength range, so you know, like basically lots of, um, lots of bands, lots of, you know, like uh, wavelength um, 
you, you, you can explore a, you know, like a large uh, wavelength range. Um, you, can, you can begin to you know, uh, disentangle between these two things. That's great. I think this is what we call a narrowband photometry. Is that right? No, it's uh, it's using like broad uh, broadband photometry. So you know, like the filters as as they are, you know, like yellow, uh, red, green, um, the the filters that we've been using for a long time. Thing is that you extend a little bit to the red, which is the the infrared. You know, like a little bit more beyond what we see in the in the optical red. And also, you try to go to also like more ultraviolet um, wavelengths. So you have like um, you can you have a, a, a like a larger range of of that, and that basically like um, yeah, that describes a little bit more your 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 what we call the stellar populations, so your population of, of, of stars. And that gives you like this advantage between uh, um, from the, the spectroscopy because the spectroscopy, the thing is that because you are separating your um, your lights in in so much, it it can be less efficient uh, to explore you know like things that are fainter. So, right. but because you would yeah. need you would need a lot of time you would need a lot of observing time to build up a large spectral signal but it sounds like what you're exactly. saying is look there's a a difference in how the light is distributed across wavelength bands between high metal and low metal stars so if you measure these different bands uh and the stars emit light across all of these bands so if you measure ultraviolet blue green yellow red and infrared, um, then you can sort of fit like, okay, well, how much of this light comes from only the hydrogen in the stars? How much of the light comes from the metals in the stars? And you can actually get a gauge of metallicity without either having to spend the expensive amount of telescope time gathering the data you need to do spectroscopy or having to, um, you know, throw away a bunch of that useful data. Um, you're basically making the most of your data to get these photometric measurements of, you know, information that allows you to conclude what the metallicity is. Is that is that close to what's going on? Yeah, it's close. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just I, I, I just wanted to mention that that is possible because we have, you know, we we've been studying stars that are closer to us in our Milky Way, and by studying them like in, in so much detail because you know they are closer and we can do that with them, we can start exploring things that are farther away, right? And and use that kind of uh, models, you know, like this star with this metallicity and this age. Uh, emits light in in this particular way across the spectrum, so we can you know like go and look at this this galaxy and overall this galaxy looks you know like has the same distribution of light, and so you can say you can say that basically the average you know star that it's that inhabits this um, this you know galaxy that is far away, it's similar to the to this star that you have close to you. 
which which seems like a reasonable assumption, right? There are a lot of uncertainties that we have when we're looking at a distant object and we're saying like, okay, but how sure are we that the assumptions that what we're observing nearby is similar to what we're observing far away? But that 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 makes some sense, right? We we don't think the physics of stars is very different in a galaxy a little farther away from us than a nearby galaxy or the stars within our own galaxy. The there there might be major differences in the environments, there might be major differences in uh, certain features that they have, but uh, the physics underlying them is the same, and if you see the light distribution occurring in a certain way, you can pretty much say, look, stars work the same and light works the same, so uh, we don't think we're fooling ourselves in this regard. Yeah, no, no, like stars are stars, no matter where they are. It's just that, you know, some of them are more similar to the, the ones that we can see closer, and some of them they might be like more difficult to see, you know, close, closer to us, but still, you know, like um, we can basically use the, those that are closer to us to study things that are a little bit farther away, and then, you know, like it's just kind of a ladder of, you know, studying things that are closer, things that are not as close, and then, you know, like building this ladder till you can explore things that are like very far from us. That, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So when we, when we look at these galaxy clusters or when we look at galaxies within a galaxy cluster, um, one, of the, one of the major areas of research that goes on surrounds the dark matter in these galaxies, in these galaxy clusters, and, and also in the intracluster medium between the galaxy clusters. When you observe the light coming from either an individual galaxy or a galaxy cluster, um, you can actually learn something about the amount of dark matter that is inside of them. How how does observing the light from these stars, where the stars realistically contain practically no dark matter, how does the stars and the light, how does that give you information about the dark matter inside these galaxies or galaxy clusters? So one of the ways that we realize that there's this kind of dark matter is by observing the how the galaxies move in the on in those uh, galaxy clusters. So in 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 the 30s, in the 1930s, um, Zwicky uh, measured um, uh, the velocities of galaxies in the in this very nearby cluster that is called Coma, and he realized that the the galaxies were moving too fast for the cluster to be. A, a, like a, a, a structure that you see, if the only mass that was present was the mass that it's in the in the galaxies that you see. So for the cluster to be connected, to be bound by um, by by gravity, there there has to be more mass than what uh, you can see. And that's why um, you know they started to to explore if there were like you know like. Uh, mass in the in the form of planets, which they don't um, they don't show any light, but you know, like you you know that um, that, that 
there are planets in you know in the in the universe. So they started to see you know like there might be plan there might be lots of planets or 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 some you know like some kind of brown brown dwarf you know like a very faint um, star that might be there but you cannot see them uh, very easily. Uh, they they thought for a while that it might be like this intracluster light, but there was there was no explanation for that because the the colors of this intracluster light was uh, they were not as red as you needed for um, for that you know for the for the mass of in this light to be enough to make up for the for the mass that you don't see there. Um, as you know, like we are, we are studying, um, you know, the the amount of planets that we can see from 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 the Earth, and also there's they are not enough for to explain this um, quantity of mass. So, you know, there has to be something else that we cannot see that we only only can see, you know, how it um, basically interacts, you know, only by gravity. We could only see the effect in the stars, and it's, it doesn't emit in any other wavelength. So the only the only possibility there it was it was that there there was there was something that we don't know what it is, which is what we call um, dark matter now. And still we don't know what it is. We have like some constraints of on what it could be. But still, you know, like it's still we are like working on that. You know, I, I think that's a really excellent explanation. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to complain about that for a little while because um, okay. Zwicky made his observations of the coma cluster and the galaxies moving around in the coma cluster back in the early 1930s. In 1933, he coined the term donkel materie, which means dark matter, literally dark matter in, uh, I think he was speaking Swiss German. Um, and, um, and astronomers just dismissed it. They said exactly what you said, like for 40 years and just waved their hands like, oh yeah, but you know, it could be, sure, it could just be that there's a plenty of light out there that isn't in the form of stars. And, you know, you can say like, oh, yeah, well, this galaxy cluster would fly apart because we know the laws of gravity and we see how fast they're moving and there isn't enough mass in there. In fact, according to Zwicky's observation, there would have to be like 160 times the amount of mass that he said is in there from the starlight that he sees. And, uh, oh, you know, it's just got to be there. It's just probably in, in forms you don't observe that don't emit light like like very very faint stars or um or in planets or in little like uh basketballs or soccer ball sized objects or maybe there's dust or gas or plasma or black holes or something something else is in there don't worry about this problem and zwicky said no this is a serious problem a factor of 160 is a big number so even if you know even if there are some of these things out there, they're not going to make up for that whole difference. And we didn't take those observations that Zwicky made, those very, very good observations, really seriously until about 40 years had passed. And we started with the observations 
of Rubin and Ford of individually rotating galaxies where observations got good enough that they could actually measure what we call the differential rotation of a spiral galaxy where you can see actually it's not doing what the solar system does where the outer objects move around the center more slowly than the inner objects. It looks like the outer objects move around the center just as quickly as the inner objects. So maybe there is this dark matter after all. Um, look, Zwicky was wrong about a few things. He made the assumption that the stars in those galaxies are exactly like the stars in our neighborhood, and we know they're not. We know that on average, stars have a mass to light ratio that's off by about a factor of three from what they are for the stars that we see uh, nearby us. So, okay, so maybe it's not 160 to one, maybe it's 50 to one, that that there's, there's 50 times too little matter for light. And then you say, oh yeah, but we can also measure like the intracluster matter and the intercluster matter and the warm hot intergalactic medium and the and the dust and the gas and the and the the macho objects the massive compact halo objects that you refer to that were found by Eros and Ogle and other surveys starting in the 90s um but you know you add all of that up too and you say you know we had this problem and we're still short most of the matter. We can maybe account for 13 to 15% or so of it with normal matter. That is matter that originated as protons, neutrons, and electrons. But the overwhelming majority of it, Zwicky's initial supposition was right. It doesn't emit or absorb light and it yet, it yet exerts a gravitational force. I, I often find myself wondering, could we have gotten like a 40-year head start over where we are today on the dark matter problem if we had actually taken Zwicky's observations seriously? I'm, it's interesting. I'm not sure because most of the advances that we've made also come from um, you know, having like uh, better instrumentation. You know, like more accurate um, instruments and and you know more accurate um, measuring of the of the data that we we get. So probably not. Maybe in the you know more like the theoretical side, it would, would be a little bit ahead. But I think that probably is what um, you know. It's what it is. It, it it would be like how it is now. And just 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 a comment. Um, so the the the, the term uh, dark matter, it, I think that it comes from from um, from the French. It's a uh, it. So the me the first measurements about you know this this kind of extra matter that um, it's out there, uh, they came from Ort, uh from the Milky Way. The thing is that uh, Vera Rubin and Ken Freeman. What they uh, they made it's much better observations of you know like what is outside you know like in the outer parts of the Milky Way, but the first measurements were in the yeah beginning of the 20th century. Well, that's interesting. I don't think I knew about that. I think it's uh, you know maybe that's another piece of evidence that uh, you know when you grow up in the United States, you're so biased towards science that happens in the United States that you don't really. Uh, 
you don't really learn about all the history of observations and discoveries that were made elsewhere that are just as or even more important or have primacy over the ones you've learned about. So I think I think getting those history lessons is always pretty important. I love, um, you know, one of the things that um, that came from, you know, like my study of the intercluster light is looking at, you know, what Zwicky did, um, which like in most cases, um, when you look back at all these, you know, like uh, uh, papers that uh, were published in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you, you've seen that most of the ideas that you, you think now that, oh, yeah, I'm so, you know, like, uh, so creative, I'm so intelligent, I, I came up with this idea. And you see, every, and you go back and, and you see a paper from the 70s, 80s that had the same, that same idea, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, like these people, they didn't have like the, the technology, but they had the ideas to, you know, and I don't know, they, would, they were like very insightful in that way. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that appealed to me about becoming a theorist is that you it's sort of like the intersection of observations and experiment with what's physically known and then you take that next step and you use your imagination and you try to imagine a pathway for a mechanism that could explain this and and it, it's always been fascinating to me the ideas that theorists have come up with over time including even the wrong ideas like you mentioned these this idea of machos of these massive compact halo objects that maybe there are maybe there are these planets or these other non-luminous masses that are floating through the universe and that's the cause of the unseen gravitation you know it's it's a remarkable idea. It turns out not to be correct because we've taken those observations and we've measured them. We've measured that that there are these unseen masses out there um, through through microlensing and through other and through other observational techniques uh, like uh, far infrared or mid infrared observations. Um, and you know we know now that yeah there are these objects out there and there aren't nearly enough of them to account for this dark matter puzzle that we have. But but it's fascinating that in theory it could have and. You're right, the observational techniques needed to catch up. You mentioned the advances in instrumentation are the things that drive this, and I think that's something that we don't generally appreciate. You know, when you start thinking about how astronomy has improved over the past hundred years or so, it isn't because telescopes have gotten larger. Yeah, sure, they, they have gotten larger, but it, it's not like they were hundreds of times larger today than they were back then. They're maybe two to four times larger. But the big advances have come in instrumentation in terms of the amount of light that we gather that we can turn into useful data and the amount of utility we can get out of that data. We're now at a point where almost every photon that comes into a modern telescope can be put to extraordinary use in determining what's out there. And that's the real advance, that we can measure precisions and line widths, and we can just take better data from the universe. It's really the improvements in instrumentation that I think have driven a lot of what I would say modern astronomy is doing at the frontiers. Exactly. I think that is something that it's not really appreciated about astronomy. 
that, you know, like, because we want to say these things that, you know, like just, you know, pushing a little bit, you know, like the science that we're doing, we are developing a lot of, uh, a lot of technology to do that. Uh, one, you know, like some of them might not be as, you know, super practical, like, you know, like polishing mirrors to the micron might not have like a straightforward uh, application, but there are some of the things that we are developing just, you know, as for astronomy that, um, that have, they have an impact in, 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 you know, like in, in, in the daily life of people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, I think you have to look no further than your smartphone and the camera in it to or, or the screen on it to sort of realize that some of these uh, telescope instrumentation technologies that that have been developed for astronomical purposes um, are are appearing in your everyday technology. Or you also have the, the Wi-Fi that was developed for um it was in I I don't remember, but yeah, well, it's one of the other um, examples. I I want to say was that was that due to someone like like Hedy Lamarr or Rosalind Franklin or I Rosalind Russell maybe. I think that Hedy Lamarr like put the like the theoretical um, basis to that, but um, the, you know the rest was um, developed. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember exactly the, the, you know, the facts about that, but yeah. Well, that's okay. I, but, but I, I don't doubt it, and I'm sure our interested listeners can go and look this up for themselves and find, oh wow, like there, there really is a connection here, and that's, and that's fascinating. Um, I think on the other side of that, you know, I know there was a new instrument uh, called the Dragonfly camera that uh, has just debuted on a telescope or a series of telescopes uh, over the last few years. And a group that you haven't been working with, but that has uh, but has uh, sort of shaken up the world a little bit, uh, has recently claimed that using this instrument, what they can basically do is they can measure these faint galaxies, these faint galaxies that are maybe smaller on the outskirts of galaxy groups or clusters. Um, and there, this is sort of interesting because when we look at large galaxies or large galaxy clusters, we sort of find that, okay, if you take what we know about all the normal matter in the universe and you take what we measure about the gravitational influence of of the galaxy, of the galaxy cluster, etc., you always infer for a large mass thing, you always infer the same dark matter to normal matter ratio. You look at a big galaxy cluster, you look at the wiggles in the cosmic microwave background, you look at the large scale structure of the universe, you look at a large rotating galaxy, and if you want to explain the motions that the stars and the galaxies within these objects have, you need about a five to one ratio of dark matter to normal matter. Then the way this works is kind of interesting if you think about it, because what the dark matter is doing is it's gravitating, but it isn't interacting with the radiation, and it isn't colliding with itself, and it isn't colliding with the normal matter. It just gravitates and doesn't interact in any other way, whereas the normal matter uh, 
it can stick together, it can have inelastic collisions, it can shed energy, it can exchange and lose angular momentum. So what's happening is you can, when you have these complicated interactions, you can have, for example, a galaxy that forms an enormous number of stars. And if this galaxy is low enough in mass, the radiation from those new stars can blow an enormous amount of the normal matter out of that galaxy. And you would wind up with a small galaxy that was dominated by dark matter, that just had so much more than that five to one ratio of dark matter to normal matter. But on the other hand, you could have a tidally disrupted galaxy where, like we talked about earlier, some of that matter, some of that normal matter, some of that star forming matter can get pulled out of whatever galaxy it was a part of and separated from that dark matter. So it might be possible to have a low mass galaxy or a low mass collection of stars that either has much less dark matter than average or maybe even no dark matter at all. Now with the advances in instrumentation, this new team recently claimed to have found two galaxies on the outskirts. There's this large galaxy that is called NGC 1052, and it has some dwarf galaxies in its vicinities. And one of the galaxies is called DF2, and the other galaxy is called DF4. And both of these galaxies, that team claims has pretty much low or no dark matter in it, and that's really fascinating. So before we get into what you've done on these galaxies, can you tell us about what this other team did on these galaxies and why this would be interesting? So what they, they did is they used the, the Dragonfly Telephoto Array, which basically, it's a, it's a very smart uh, idea. So the problem with uh, studying, you know, like the things that are faint, what is what what I do, is that um, when you expose and expose and expose your images, your your CCD, your your camera, you start seeing all these other things that you didn't expect, which um, is that, for example, the light in the you know like in the in your telescope, because you have mirrors as. Um, to redirect the light from you know your tube to your camera. So the problem is that every la everything that uh, comes into your telescope bounces. So you have a lot of reflected light that you didn't expect, but it shows up when you expose your images for longer than you know like what normally we were doing before. So there there's this uh, extra light that Basically, it's harming what you want to see, which is which is you know very faint stuff. So the, um, the Dragonfly telescope, there are um, instead of like you know like having a normal telescope, which is a you know a couple of mirrors, they it's they have like these um, these lenses that is you know like this. There are Canon lenses that you can buy, um, the the ones that you, the paparazzi use. So the advantage with that is that you suddenly you don't have like all these reflections going on, so you get rid of those, and in and there are like it's just 
a smart way of uh, doing this kind of observations because you suddenly you get rid of all this extra light. So, so otherwise, if we if we didn't do it this way, you would basically have uh, sort of this extra confounding factor in there that there would be this this extra light coming in, and you wouldn't really be able to disentangle which light was this uh, sort of pollution light that was coming in, and which light was actually part of the target you were trying to observe. Exactly. You can do that with normal telescopes, but the thing is that you have to work harder to um, to get into the same, you know, to get rid of this light. So by using these these lenses, you ha you have to do like less of the work. All right, all right, and and what I understand they found with this technique is basically they were able to sort of make measurements of okay here's how far away this galaxy is, here's how uh, much light is coming from it, and in particular what we can do is we can measure what's called a line width. So, so if you say, okay, I'm going to take all the light that comes from a galaxy and I'm going to break it up into its individual wavelengths as narrowly as possible, you would say, okay, look, for example, if I know I have excited hydrogen atoms in my galaxy, then I know that excited hydrogen atoms, right, have specific transitions in their energy levels. And so if something drops, for example, from the n equals 3 to the n equals 2 level, I know every time it's going to emit a photon of exactly 656.3 nanometers. But these stars in the galaxy aren't all perfectly at rest. And they're also not passing through gas that is at like absolute zero temperature. So I'm going to get thermal broadening because I have this gas is actually at a temperature and that's going to spread the line out. And also the individual molecules or atoms that emit this light, they're moving either towards me or away from me relative to the rest frame of that galaxy. So when I measure how wide is this line, I'm getting a measure of how big is what we call the velocity dispersion, how fast are the stars within this galaxy moving? And so what I understand they were able to do is they were able to say, look, based on how fast the stars are moving within this galaxy relative to one another, right, that would create this line width that we observe. And that allows us to say how much mass is in this galaxy, and let's compare that to what we know about stars and what we know about how much, you know, starlight is coming from this. And they find, as I understand it, that instead of needing that five to one ratio of dark matter to normal matter, that that ratio is much, much lower. Somehow we are dealing with galaxies that have much less dark matter than average or even no dark matter at all is a possibility. And that's what I understand that they did and they said based on their results. Is that is that a fair characterization? Uh, it's There's a lot of things going on. So for... Um, um, you know, doing this this work, which was published in, in Nature in 2018, they used uh, three 
um, facilities, so three telescopes. They use uh, the Dragonfly telescope to identify this kind of uh, faint diffuse galaxies that they call ultra-diffuse galaxies. Um, they identify them with the Dragonfly telescope. They um, use uh, Hubble Space Telescope imaging to identify from those galaxies something that we call globular clusters that are like a, basically like a ball of, of stars that are you know very dense and normally galaxies have lots of them. So um, the the advantage of using these globular clusters as is that as they are dense they are brighter than than you know especially brighter than this galaxy. So you can use the light from these globular clusters to uh, you know, measure these, um, this, the velocity of the global clusters and infer the mass that it's contained in, you know, in, in the galaxy. And then, you know, when you have that, which is the total mass of the galaxy, which is, you know, the mass in stars and the mass in, in dark matter, and you measure the, the mass in stars, which is the light that uh, comes from the galaxy, basically, you, by subtracting these two, you have the mass in, in dark matter that is in, in your galaxy. And they found for uh, DF2 and DF4, they found that this ratio that you, uh, you were talking about, instead of being like, you know, like, uh, you know, like in these galaxies, you have like a hundred more dark matter than, uh, than stars. Instead of that, they found that the ratio is one to one. And, and that, that to me sounds like, look, there are a few predictions of dark matter that, you know, I think is very important to test. And one of those predictions is that two types of low mass galaxies should be possible. You should have galaxies like these dwarf galaxies that are extremely dominated by dark matter. And we've found those where, where you know, okay, we think they form stars and most of the gas, most of the normal matter got expelled from a rapid burst of star formation. And so we might see a galaxy that only has a few, even a few hundred or a few thousand stars in it, but might have a mass of hundreds of thousands of solar masses required to hold it together. And, and we found galaxies like that. We found galaxies like that even within our own local group. But then there really ought to be stars that are on the other end of the kind that you just described, where instead of having a dark matter to normal ratio, to normal matter ratio of many times to one, what if it's just one to one? What if you have something with only stars in it, where the stars are all that's there and there's no dark matter at all? Um, I think this was the first observation that was, you know, robust in some way that I think had demonstrated like, hey, we have evidence for finding galaxies like this. But like all observations of something new, uh, this one wasn't without controversy either, was it? Uh, no, the problem with this, you know, having a galaxy that virtually has no dark matter or has very low dark matter is that first, we don't know how they form. Because you, normally, you know, our models need like this kind of uh, uh, mass where, you know, like all the gas is, is being attracted to and, and, well, and where it, the stars can, can form. They cool, they, uh, the gas cool down, uh, cools down and they form. 
another another thing, another aspect is that um, we don't know how these galaxies would still survive. Uh, these galaxies have been measured to have like you know like a, around seven billion years, so they are quite old. The problem is that you know like especially if they are in a like a group environment where there are like some other galaxies, some more massive galaxies, um, they are a little bit. There will be a little bit unstable, so any any you know any other force will basically disrupt them. So the cool the cool thing about having these galaxies there is that you know um, basically you don't know how to explain them. So the the controversy was like, oh, if those galaxies exist, how can we explain them? And and you know like it's what we know about the universe wrong. Uh, we have to fix it. Uh, is there something that we are missing? There's something that we are not understanding. That is the the main pro kind of problem of having these galaxies there. I see. So so is it more like saying, okay, look, if you wanted to make up a, a scenario where, okay, sure, let's say we had two galaxies gravitationally interact and some of the mass uh, because of the tidal interaction, some of the mass in the gas there, uh, it collapsed and formed new stars and got tidally stripped out of the galaxy, stripped out of the main galaxy. So then you had this, you know, this large region of stars that didn't have any dark matter in it because this mass got, you know, the stellar mass got pulled out of it. If it's 7 billion years old and it exists in this group or cluster environment, because there's no dark matter and because it's low in mass and because there's such little gravity, uh, after 7 billion years, this object should have been basically destroyed by the interactions it would have had. These, these stellar populations would have dissociated over time um, and we wouldn't be seeing a galaxy this large with no dark matter in it unless something else is going on that we don't understand so so this is fascinating if true but there are reasons to doubt that these conclusions are correct because it would turn so much of what we understand on its head is that a fair characterization yeah yeah uh, yeah, that's and um, that's you know like this paper uh, when it came it came out it um, it also had another accompanying paper that was uh, saying that the globular clusters you know like these kind of balls of of, of um, stars that are uh, around this uh, this galaxy they were also abnormally brighter uh, compared to the to the ones that we know from our Milky Way from other galaxies that we've observed. So this galaxy has like very massive uh, globular clusters and very little dark matter. Right. So so in general, just for anyone who doesn't know, a globular cluster in general is about uh, it's a ball of stars that's maybe a few dozen to maybe a hundred light years in diameter, but it's full of stars. It's got maybe on average, a typical one has maybe a hundred thousand stars in it in this tiny little range. And it's just this little elliptical ball of stars. In our Milky Way, we have about 150 of them or so, uh, but some galaxies have as many as like 10,000 of them. Um, and in general, they have a distribution of 
of properties. Some are small, some are large, some are bright, some are faint. This, they, they tended overall to form a long time ago. Most of them are, I would say, more than 10 billion years old and may even be more like 12 or 13 billion years old. Um, but overall, globular clusters formed long ago consist of old stars now and have uh, a distribution in terms of brightness and densities that that are pretty well understood at least close by but then as you were saying you find globular clusters around these ultra diffuse galaxies like df2 or df4 and what are we finding for the globular clusters around df2 so these uh, properties of, of the you know the these global clusters the you know like the distribution of um, of brightness and the distribution of densities um, sizes sorry uh, normally they are pretty well understood and they are pretty quite uh, we call it universal so they they are more more or less the same in in any galaxy that we we stu- we, we have studied so these. Um, global clusters in this particular galaxy, it was weird that they were brighter than, than what would, would you expect in, the, in, in this kind of galaxies. They were like very massive, which means that they are brighter. So there are these two things. Global clusters are brighter, galaxy has uh, very little of dark matter. And that's why when we basically um, link these two things together, is why um, we responded with uh, our paper. That is, you know, uh, if you want to introduce it, I don't know. Yeah, I can introduce that. I mean, so so a few months after this Dragonfly paper came out, there was another paper came out that you were a co-author on uh, that basically said, you know, um, maybe this isn't a dark matter-free galaxy. Maybe this galaxy doesn't have the amount of dark matter you said, and this weird, inexplicable thing about globular clusters. Instead, maybe you've inferred the distance to this galaxy incorrectly. Uh, And that would change a whole lot of things because... One of the big things that is very well understood about astronomy is how brightness and distance are related to one another. That if you put an object twice as far away, it's only going to appear one quarter as bright because the brightness from an object spreads out over a sphere the farther away you get from it. So you brought up this very interesting possibility in your paper that maybe what's going on is not that we have a galaxy with no dark matter in it and these weirdly bright globular clusters. Maybe what we have going on is we have a galaxy with much more normal globular clusters and you've estimated the distance to the galaxy incorrectly, and if you've estimated the distance to the galaxy incorrectly, then maybe we should do that translation and see, you know, if the galaxy is at this new distance instead, and the globular clusters support that, um, then what are the properties of dark matter in this galaxy? And maybe you want to tell us about that. Yeah, so what, you know, like what what you said, um, so basically, we had um, five different um, estimators of the distance uh, to this galaxy. 
Uh, maybe I should uh, talk about you know um, the the way that they measure the, the distance in in, uh, in the nature paper. So we have um, something that is called surface brightness fluctuations. So basically, when you see a galaxy, it's not as you know like it's not like a, a smooth thing. So you have like different you know like when you see the image, um, there are, because there are like um, you have a, a number a finite number of, of stars. Uh, and because you know they are distrib distributed randomly, uh, in some pixels you have more stars than in, in in another pixel. So and this creates like some sort of um, I don't know how to say it um, um, like granulation in the galaxy. Yeah, I uh, think I think I think oh, about surface okay. brightness fluctuations as okay if I. If I just had a glowing disk in space and the disk glowed uniformly everywhere, then I would be able to say, okay, at every pixel that has this galaxy in it, I get a uniform brightness across it. But if I don't have that, if I have, you know, okay, there are dust lanes here, there are stars of one type versus another type, uh, I have maybe bluer stars along the spiral arms, if it's a spiral galaxy, um, you know, there are variations there. Some places are brighter, some places are dimmer. So if I look at all the different, like, pixels or all the different regions where I have data across this galaxy, I'm going to have some average value of okay this is the average brightness but then if i look at the deviations from the average value that's a measure of what i can call surface brightness fluctuations and it the amount of variation that i see in the brightnesses that tells me some useful information about the galaxy itself the surface brightness fluctuations technique is an example of another type of distance indicator um, which is a way that we can say, okay, here's connecting something I can observe, like something like surface brightness fluctuations, to something that when I measure how are the surface brightnesses fluctuating, now I can know the distance to that galaxy. Exactly. Um, so, you know, the thing is that when you see like a galaxy that is smoother, so there, there's like less variation between pixel to pixel, like the, this galaxy is farther away. Instead, if you see that this uh, fluctuation, that this difference between pixel to pixel, it's bigger, the galaxy is closer to us. And that is a well-known thing, and that has been explored for, for galaxies that are, you know, massive galaxies. There's a, a well-known correlation between, you know, this, um, this um, you know, like this variation and the distance to, to the galaxy. So in that in that paper they use this correlation uh, for measuring the distance to uh, to the F2. The problem is that, as, as as I said, this correlation is is it was calibrated, it was um, measured in galaxies that were like way bigger than what uh, the F2 is, and of course they have different properties. And of course, like using this kind of, uh, what we call extrapolation. It's very risky because you don't you don't know how this um, this this calibration works at the at that um, at the properties of uh, at the at this lower mass um, galaxies in these lower mass galaxies how the properties change and if maybe this calibration is slightly different 
So that was one of the things that uh, we we discuss in in our paper that you know like uh, you cannot rely in, in these things. Uh, we you know show uh, models of um, of the supranasal coloration. And, uh, you know, like basically we found that, um, there's like a, a gap there that, um, you know, you cannot, um, basically you cannot use this calibration for this type of galaxies. Can I, can I, can I, uh, ask you a little bit about this? Cause this is something, you know, I, I wrote my very first astronomy paper on observational cosmology. And, you know, I remember that one of the things you do when you have something like surface brightness fluctuations, which which I would call an empirical correlation, right? You say like, okay, look, there is some physics going on here that's driving all of this, and we don't understand it fully. But what we do is we notice a correlation between this thing we measure and some absolute property of of this galaxy or the stars in the galaxy or whatever it is we're measuring. And then what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, well, this thing has a known range of validity and we're going to apply it to something that's now in a new place where we haven't applied it before. And we're going to assume that this correlation is still good and now we're going to use that same relationship to draw inferences about the distance, the data, etc., the properties of the galaxy. Um, and that's always dangerous. That always strikes me as a very risky thing to do because you are assuming that something that's been established in one regime now applies to a new regime and you're using that assumption to draw all of your conclusions from based on that. So I really like what you did in the paper as an approach where you said, well, let's use a wide variety of potential distance estimators for this galaxy and see what different techniques yield as a measurement distance for this. Because if everything, if all the different methods we use, they all yield the same results, and that result is consistent with what the Dragonfly team inferred, then, then we wouldn't really question their results. But if we start getting different results for the different techniques we can use, um, maybe that's an assumption that needs to be questioned. Yeah, exactly. And basically by using these five different estimators, we found, um, we've found that in each of them, um, Basically, they, each of them agree with uh, like a closer distance. Yeah, and that's also kind of interesting. One of the things I remembered you said in that paper is, hey, if you take a look at that big galaxy, NGC 1052, that we said, you know, initially that the Dragonfly team said like, oh, these ultra diffuse galaxies, these tiny dwarf galaxies, they're, they're gravitationally bound to this. We find them in the same place of the sky and maybe... Uh, their satellites or outskirt galaxies that are part of that group. Uh, but what you sort of noted is that close by that galaxy, there's a galaxy with a slightly different phone number, that's NGC 1042, I believe, that... Uh, that actually is right along the same line of sight, like it's almost at an identical position in the sky, 
but it's actually uh, millions of light years closer to us, and that maybe these ultra-diffuse galaxies we're looking at are satellite members of that galaxy and that galaxy group rather than the farther one that they assumed was the case. Exactly. So in a, in a, in an again another paper that um, I, I was not part of. Uh, it's Monelli and Trujillo, 2019. What they they measure, you know, like basically they measure uh, distances to all the galaxies in the field. Um, of, you know, of this um, image of uh, NGC 1052. Um, so they use like um, a technique that is the the tip of the red giant branch, which is a very well-known, it's, it's, it's a very um, reliable estimator of the distance to, to, you know, like astrophysical extragalactic sources. And they found that there are like two groups, like this, the group of NGC 1052, which is in the background, and and you know, in front of that, there's the this group with NGC 1042, uh, NGC 1035. You know, like it's a, a, a it's kind of a, like a smaller group where um, you know, like um, these galaxies, DF DF2 and DF4 belong. So so basically. Um they associated these small galaxies with the wrong large galaxy that's farther away. And if you bring these galaxies instead in line with these closer galaxies like 1042 or 1035, which the data from other distance indicators like tip of the red giant branch supports, then maybe we're not getting anomalously low values for the dark matter in this galaxy. Maybe these aren't dark matter-free galaxies. Maybe these are galaxies that, you know, hey, maybe they only have normal globular clusters, and maybe they're closer. And if they're closer, then that changes the properties of their velocity dispersion that we infer. And maybe these galaxies have dark matter after all. So that this, here comes the, 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 the fun thing. So, you know, uh, a revisited distance, a new distance, a closer distance, uh, works for DF2. So DF2 um, has, you know, like normal globular clusters. It has a little bit, you know, uh, the content of Darmat is a little bit low, but it's still, you know, uh, in line with things that we've, we've already seen, in, uh, you know, like in nearby galaxies. The problem comes with DF4. The DF4, if you put it, you know, in a in a closer distance, the con the the global clusters are normal, but the content in the content of dark matter is still too low. So there's a a, a different distance doesn't solve the the problem with DF4. Well, so. And that, that's not necessarily bad. It's just saying, you know, if we look at these two galaxies, um, they don't necessarily have the exact same explanation for why they both appear to show too little dark matter. One of them, changing the distance, fixes it. But the other one might have an additional effect going on instead. So tell me... Um, when we look at this other galaxy, when we look at DF4, um, you just had a new paper come out October of 2020 that you were the first author on. Um, 
that you put forth a new explanation for why this galaxy that we call DF4 might be missing dark matter or might be appearing, quote unquote, to be missing dark matter. Yeah, so the so the discovery of these two galaxies that um, you know, don't have uh, enough uh, dark matter, so it sparked this controversy, and there were like a lot of theoretical studies that were trying to explain, you know, what that can happen. Maybe you have like a collision of two galaxies, and all the dark matter is removed, um, and you know, like um, I think that the the, the explanation that was more favored was the, the tidal stripping of, uh, of dark matter. The problem is that um, there were like, a, you know, like the, um, the Dragonfly team and another team were um, doing, you know, this, um, this, um, this very deep observations of, of these galaxies and they were f finding that there was no evidence of, of, of the, this tidal stripping going on. This tidal stripping is what, um, you know, like we were t uh, talking before, is that, you know, like because you have a, like a massive galaxy or another galaxy, because of these um, tid uh, tidal forces, this uh, difference between, you know, like uh, the, the, the gravity is pulling um, the, the, the stars or, well, the, it's pulling the, the stars uh, away from 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 the galaxy. In this case, uh, it will be that uh, it's stripping the dark matter. So this is this is kind of an interesting idea to me because in theory, uh, dark matter and normal matter both experience the gravitational force, but normal matter also experiences other forces that dark matter doesn't. So. If you have um, this tidal disruption happening, if you have this gravitational influence of other objects acting on an object that has both normal matter and dark matter in it, um, how would you get an effect that separated the normal matter from the dark matter? Because it sounds like that's what you're telling me might be going on, is that, is that yes, you know, there is normal matter and there is dark matter, but these tidal interactions are sort of making us see a region where we're seeing a different ratio of normal matter to dark matter than we normally see, but that's only because this tidal disruption is happening. So how how does tidal disruption do that? So it's not that the effect is, is different, it's the same effect, because, you know, it's just working with gravity, but the the difference here is how the both, you know, like stars and dark matter distribute. Because uh, we were um, saying before that um, this this kind of galaxies normally they have like a hundred times more dark, dark matter than normal matter. So basically, it's like having like, like your bowl of cereal, and you know, like you have your 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 you know you have your bowl, which is would be like the dark matter, and you have your cereal would be like the stars. So the star the the cereal is on the you know the bottom of the the bowl. So it's in on the kind of bottom of the bowl, metaphorically speaking, of your dark matter bowl. 
So kind of it's you know like what we're talking about the if you if you don't have like this this ball any 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 little um, thing any little force will uh, basically disrupt the galaxy so if instead of of having a ball you you have your cereal in the table like a little you know like movement of the table will you know will basically uh, have your um, cereal just you know everywhere but if you have your ball if there's a like a, a little you know like you, you tip a little bit or you know like you just um, um, just like play a little bit with the ball, like your cereal will still be there. So your your bowl is like the dark matter because your bowl basically, uh, it's sort of like it creates a giant potential well that if you want to get your cereal out of the bowl, you need to tip the bowl really hard to get the cereal out. Uh, whereas if you just put the cereal on the table, even a tiny shake of that table or accidentally bumping it with your leg is going to make the cereal go everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. That's the, the, the thing. So it kind of like the dark matter kind of shields the, the galaxies inside. So that's what uh, we were saying that uh, that's one of the problems of having a, a galaxy without dark matter. It's like, why is this galaxy there? And because, you know, like with the, these deep observations that um, other people were, um, were doing, you cannot see that anything is happening. You, you see the galaxies that are very symmetric. They are like, you know, like these blobs and uh, you don't see any, you know, any asymmetry that is, uh, saying that there's like tidal stripping going on. So that's why those galaxies were so peculiar, right? So it was like, I, we don't know how to explain that. Okay, so let's see. So, so if there's tidal disruption happening, um, now we're saying, okay, that means that we're having an interaction happen that's major enough that it might start, uh, it might start pulling this this dark matter away. But it's, um, but the effect on the stars is going to be much less significant. Like you're you're not going to see the stars start to be affected until the dark matter has been really significantly affected by tidal interactions. Exactly. It has to um, you have to remove like most of the dark matter to start seeing the star the stars being affected. So this is this is a challenging idea to me because um for a system this small, we don't really have a direct way to measure dark matter or how dark matter is being disrupted. We can really only look at the stellar matter. We can really only look at the luminous matter, right? We're, we're not yet at the technological point where we can do something like weak gravitational lensing on a mass this small. So um, this, is, this is, to me, this is a fascinating idea. Um, what evidence can you look at to sort of say is this what's going on so what we did in 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 my paper it's basically we 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 went and we start um we explored this thing this you know this is scenario in two ways the scenario of the tidal stripping we looked at the global art clusters how they distribute 
because when you know like when when because the distribution of globular clusters is not as extended as, as the dark matter, but they are more extended than the, than the stars of the galaxies. So if this is happening, the distribution of globular clusters should be, uh, instead of being, you know, like around the galaxy, like a, like a kind of a sphere, in, in a kind of a sphere, instead of being distributed like more, you know, like in a roundish way, it would be, they, they would be like more distributed along the way that the, um, that the, you know, galaxy is, is you know, along the direction of, of the galaxy. Oh, so wait a minute. So if I'm thinking about cereal at the bottom of a bowl, are you saying that these globular clusters are sort of like having a, like dehydrated blueberries? in the cereal that that when you start to tip the bowl the globular clusters move more easily than the cereal does so is that is that what's going on here is these globular clusters are appearing with a biased distribution over what you would normally use a globular cluster distribution to infer because of a tidal interaction Exactly. Instead of, you know, like imagine if you tip your, your ball too much, instead of having your blueberries on top of your cereal, the blueberries will fall into, you know, like um, the direction where you, you are tipping your ball. Oh, so, so these globular clusters that you would normally use to like tell you some really useful, robust information, if you use that same technique while the galaxy is undergoing tidal disruption, these globular clusters are going to give you a biased, incorrect inference for any property you would use them to measure. Yes. Uh, there's a, like a limit. Um, and the, the limit, you know, like in, in, in simulations, you know, in theor theoretical studies, They've, they've been exploring that, and actually, the the, the amount of star matter where um, it has to um, fall, it it's it's quite low. So it's they are pretty reliable uh, till the moment that the galaxy is almost being disrupted. So even though um, you have the 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 problem of of you know like uh, the this distribution is like biasing your results. There are some points that you still can use them for, you know, like measuring the mass of the the total mass of the system. I see. So if I try to envision the worst case scenario, then the worst case scenario that I could do that I would fool myself if I were an observational astronomer is right when the stellar mass is starting to be disrupted, right? Right when that moment is first arriving, that is the worst time that I could make my measurements because if I happen to be looking at that time, then the globular clusters would be in the wrong place. They would be biased. The dark matter would be almost completely uh disrupted, almost completely ripped out of where it ought to be. Um, but the stars would just barely be affected by this, but they'd be starting to be affected. And that would be like the most biased time I could look at this. Not the most biased, but the most tricky one. Okay. You know, the trickiest one. 
um, because you are it's it's to see the this effect on the stars it would be harder but um, you you will have all the most of the dark matter gone so you will have like something weird which is what is happening with df4 so if if this is what's happening with df4 um is there a surefire observation that I could make, either either with current technology or with future technology, that would allow me to definitively say, this is what's happening, this is not a dark matter-free galaxy, this is a galaxy whose bowl is being tipped over right now? So that is what we did in the, in the, in the, in the paper. The thing with that is that the, um, you know, like we tried to explain this this scenario, this tidal stripping scenario, and we we were seeing that other works, they were like going deep, but you know you can always go deeper, and we have the techniques and, and we have the especially the time, <laughs> that that is very important. They have the telescope time to invest on 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 you know like basically observing like night after night this particular galaxy, you can reach, um, um, you know, like very, very deep, um, very deep and very faint uh, structures that are around the galaxy. And that's what we do. We did. We explore the globular clusters and we, and we saw that um, they align in a, in a very particular um, direction. But we also um, had uh, very, very deep images. So at the end, it was like 60 hours of, of telescope time for one image, which is a, a crazy amount of time. Yeah, that is a crazy amount of time. For, for those of you listening at home, uh, for an astronomer, 60 hours for one dwarf galaxy is an incredible amount of time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. When, when you think about that, it's like, wow, well, okay, <laughs> it's just crazy. Well, that, that means someone on the review board thought that this was such an important proposal that it is worth taking a world-class telescope and, you know, taking observations of it for, you know, the equivalent of basically like we're going to devote an entire week of observing time's worth of time to this one object. Exactly. We were like very lucky that you know people that were in the in in these two telescopes that we used the the one you know the largest telescope optical telescope which is the the Gran Telescopio de Canarias is a GTC it's in the Canary Islands and the other one because you know this is the largest telescope and we use use another one that's a it's a tinier telescope that is called the ISC 80 which is an 80 centimeter telescope. Uh, which is very, you know, it's very funny because it's one of the first telescopes that um, they had in the in the Canary Islands, uh, in that observatory. So it's just fun to like, kind of reclaim that those telescopes can do like a, you know, like very, you know, like a frontier science. Yeah, I mean, like you were like you were saying earlier, uh, instrumentation, like the new cameras that are on even older, smaller telescopes, can in many ways outperform uh, a larger telescope with an inferior instrument on it. And it's not the the, the instrumentation; it's what we've learned, you know, along all these these years of trying to do this kind of science. Is that data processing? It has to be very accurate, and it has to be. Um, very specific of this this kind of science. 
you know, like uh, for, get rid of all this um, light that it's being, you know, like reflected in the telescope, um, getting rid of the stars that, of course, when you go that that faint, they are like, even like the fainter, the faintest stars in our galaxy, they are too bright. And all the light gets dispersed in the in your detector. So you have to also get rid of them. You know, it's a, like, it's a lot of processing that has to happen to be able to, um, to see these things. Yeah, and, and you're able to do that now. You're even able to take the light that um, maybe pollutes this galaxy from the other galaxies in its vicinity and its cluster and model those out as well. Yeah, we did that. Um, there's a nearby galaxy that we also model and, and subtracted. Yeah, yeah. No, of and course we, you did that. <laughs> of course you did that. <laughs> and I, I think that is like figure five. And you can see, you know, like, um, you know, like the, the, the image as it is and the image that um, we subtracted uh, a nearby star and, and the, the, near, the nearest galaxy. And you can see clearly that, you know, there's like some asymmetry sh uh, showing up. It's kind of an S, S shape. That basically is indicating that this galaxy is, is going, you know, it's undergoing tidal disruption. But it's super faint because it's just starting to affect the stars. Oh well, that's great. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna grab that image from the figure, and uh, I get to share one image with every podcast, and I'll make sure that your figure five from this paper is the image that everyone gets to see uh, when they look at this podcast. Yeah, and and I'm looking at it right now. I can I can absolutely see, you know, especially it becomes very clear with that starlight removed, yeah. um, with that excess light removed. That yeah, this galaxy that we're looking at, this DF4 galaxy, like looking from the uh, looking from the upper right to the lower left of the image, it looks very much like it's tidally disrupted along that direction where the extended light is elongated in that direction and compressed in the perpendicular direction exactly that is basically indicating also the direction of uh, where the the this galaxy is going so the the you know these these kind of tails normally they're they're uh, oriented uh towards the you know like the the where the tidal forces are, are acting so it's just one it's there one that is going into the direction of the galaxy that is performing this this disruption, you know, the, the, the big galaxy, and another that is going in the other direction. So, and you have like this S and basically just pointing towards this big galaxy that is called NGC 1035, which is the galaxy that it's doing this, this thing, that it's, it's, it's basically disrupting this uh, very tiny galaxy. And that's that's typically how it goes: is you get a a comparable or a bigger mass thing close by a a comparable or a smaller mass thing, and the smaller mass has its contents more severely disrupted. Whereas the larger galaxy, if it's significantly larger, is really only likely to experience a smaller effect, like maybe a slight increase in its star formation rate. Exactly, but this galaxy didn't have any 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 kind of a star formation. So basically might not had any gas when that started to go. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
All right. Well, uh, I think that's that's really fascinating. And of course, uh, we'll continue to follow the saga of these galaxies because they they're doing the remarkable thing of they are providing strong evidence for the existence of dark matter and helping us explore the intricacies and interplay between dark matter, normal matter, gravity, star formation, and galaxies in these rich environments. But it looks like the conclusion that was originally drawn by the original team of maybe these galaxies have no dark matter or extremely low dark matter amounts, um, that that is very much in doubt right now, particularly in light of this new evidence. Well, in, in fact, we were proving them right. I mean, this galaxy doesn't have dark matter, but there's an explanation why it doesn't have dark matter. It's not like it's like uh, some weird galaxy or there's something like very strange going on in this particular galaxy is something that we understand that we know that it happens because um, you know the of how you know like um, our scenario of how galaxies form which is basically you have um, from from a small objects you start accreting and you know like basically eating other other galaxies and and you grow like a, bigger and bigger. Well, that that is pretty fascinating. You know, I I remember worrying that like, oh, no, like this is going to happen, right? You're going to have all the people who say dark matter is real and they're all going to say like, aha, and this this is more proof that dark matter is real at long last. And then you're going to have all the people who say dark matter isn't real are going to come out of the woodwork and find ways to poke holes in the observations. And if there's anything wrong with the observations at all, then that means all of a sudden, like, oh, that's going to just give them more ammunition. And it sounds like what you're saying is, no, like, look, let's not worry about whether dark matter is real or not. Let's try and understand the physics behind what's going on with these objects. And let's take all the observations we can to learn what's going on with these objects. And that is going to reveal to us, um, that's going to reveal to us very clearly um, what's happening and why is it happening? And that's, I think, the best thing to look for is not just what's going on with these objects, but why do these objects have the properties that they do? And this new paper, it sounds like these are superior observations. It sounds like this is a a very, very robust technique that's hard to argue with. And what it does offer is not only sort of this recognition of, oh, this galaxy does have extremely low amounts of dark matter, but it reveals why. And that to me is an enormous victory and an enormous step forward. Yeah, and, and I have to thank my, my co-authors because without, without them, I couldn't have done this, this kind of work. Um, um, my um, my co uh, my co-authors Raúl, Javi, and Alejandro were the ones that um, produced the images in in this very specific and very accurate way. Um, and Ignacio and Mateo and Alberto were the ones that were in charge of you know taking the data and applying for the time. And, and you know, like without them, basically, we I couldn't have done what I, I did. Well, you know, I think that's part of why we have collaborations in astronomy. And I know that this is not, you know, oh, we took one observation, we wrote a paper, we submitted it, we were done. I know that this, uh, you know, 
Can you give us maybe a little behind the scenes idea? I know from when you first, you know, wrote and submitted this paper to when it was accepted into the Astrophysical Journal last month. Uh, this this was like, uh, what, like an 18 month process or something to go through? So, mm, so it was, uh, you know, like uh, their their report came like pretty quickly, like in two weeks, and it was you know like it was pretty much accepted. Uh, there were like some minor things that um, we had to fix, but it it was between the the being accepted to you know the the submitting to the being accepted. It was yeah like a, around a month, which is you know pretty it's pretty quick in, in you know what we. What um, in the time frames that we are talking in, in astronomy, um, but taking the observations, uh, they were taken in like um, they were taken like around um, November, February, November last year, February this year. So yeah, it's um, you know like just a, a long time because of course we were. Oh, also doing other other stuff and all these things take a, a long time you know like this data processing it's uh, it's really hard um, because you have to basically we are doing things that we haven't done before so um, we have to to try to see you know like if it works if that doesn't work um, we have to test them in you know like to, to make sure that what we are doing is, is the right thing and you know, like all these things, just like basically trying and testing, trying and testing, trying and testing, and this takes a long time. Well, I'm really glad you do because what what I look for as a as a theorist is I look for like, can we come up with a coherent explanation to that that's simple, straightforward, and universal, where it sort of explains all the different objects we observe within one unified context because i i hate it when you have uh when you have like okay like this is my leading theory and it explains most of these things but then there are these handful of things that don't make any sense i really appreciate it much more when i can take a look at even the weirdest objects out there and say well that makes sense if this is what's going on and the data indicates this is what's going on and i think that looking at df2 and df4 as they were presented by the dragonfly team at the original distances and with the original properties and environments um, that sort of threatened that and it seems like the work that you and Ignacio and others have done together um, has really sort of brought that back into line of saying like look if you get the distances correct, if you look at the globular clusters correctly, if you uh, understand what's going on with tidal disruption and dark matter and the environment that these are in properly, um, then it does all make sense. And that's reassuring in a sense to me, but it's also a little bit disappointing because there was a part of me that was hoping like maybe there's a chance we're going to learn something revolutionary and new. But I'm also heartened by the fact that no, these theories we have and these explanations we have, they're actually working very well right now. And we can we can all sleep, you know, soundly at night knowing that we're not completely on the wrong track. I think that there were a lot of people that were disappointed when I um, 
I uploaded my 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 paper, but I think that also a lot of people like could sleep much better at night because you know like the implications of having of having these weird things go, uh, there like this is very strange and without dark matter. You know, like we had to change everything that of what we know about um, how galaxies form and evolve. So, and, and that is not a, you know, like a, not a tiny thing to do. No, and look, this is part of the fascinating thing of what are you trying to do? You're you're looking in a place where we've never really been able to look before, and so you really want to make sure we're doing it responsibly and in a scientifically sound fashion. And I know that's what not only you, but everyone, no matter which side of the issue they were initially on, that's something everyone looks forward to. That's That's part of how both theoretical and observational sciences play together and advance. Yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of like a it's advancing the the what we know and and what we can do. Uh, it's by by just you know taking little little steps, but you know it's how it's how science just evolves. Yeah, no, this has been really, really fascinating. There was one more topic I wanted to touch on, and that was a little faux pas that I did. Um, I was talking to you about some things you had worked on, and I brought up a certain galaxy. This galaxy is called NGC 1277. And uh, this is, of all the galaxies in the universe, if we were able to do what the Event Horizon Telescope did with its very first image of a black hole's event horizon, the one at the center of the galaxy M87. That is the second largest black hole as seen from the perspective of Earth, right? If we looked at all the black holes in the universe that we believe exist, uh, that one is the second largest. The first largest is the one in our own galaxy, which is much lower in mass, but also much closer. The one at the center of our galaxy would be the largest. The one in M87 would be the second largest. M87 is a massive galaxy with many, many trillions of stars inside of it that is at the center of the Virgo cluster. It's the largest, brightest galaxy, uh, maybe second brightest, but it's the most massive galaxy in the Virgo cluster. And then if you said, well, what's number three on the list? It's this one, the one that I called a weirdo, that I said, this galaxy is a weirdo because what is it? I look at it and I say, this is lower in mass than the Milky Way, but it's black hole, instead of being a few million solar masses like ours is, it's a few billion solar masses. The only problem is it isn't emitting that radio light. It's quiet in the radio. The black hole isn't active. It isn't turned on. It isn't luminous in the way that the other black holes is. So unfortunately, I don't think the Event Horizon Telescope is going to be able to image it. But I made the mistake of calling this galaxy a weirdo, and I wanted to give you the opportunity to correct me uh, and tell everyone why this galaxy is not a weirdo, but in fact is a lovely galaxy that fits very well within our standard picture of what properties galaxies should have. So, you know, like we were talking about, you know, like um, the, the how galaxies form. They form from, you know, like little things, but little, astronomically speaking, little things, to like, you know, like um, galaxies that are as massive as M87, or, you know, like all these, these massive red, mm, very kind of, you, you, 
when you see the images, they are kind of boring, but they are more interesting when you study them. So, um, the, the part, no problem with this galaxy, but it's just in, it's, it has like some very peculiar, um, properties. Is that this galaxy, you know, like we have like this very, uh, very massive, um, black hole. And, but the, the stellar mass of the galaxy is kind of small for, for having this very massive black hole. And, um, the size of this galaxy is, it's, it's very, so it's a very dense galaxy. So it's a very small size for the mass that it has. So it's what we call a compact galaxy. And, and compact galaxies are pretty common. You know, I know, uh, in fact, there's a, there's a significant team that studies them from, from Spain that gets a lot of data from the IAC that works on, in particular, the luminous compact blue galaxies found at, uh, at high redshifts in the, in the young universe. So when we talk about compact galaxies, this is just, you know, this is not some outlier weirdo galaxy. This is compact galaxies exist all over the place. They just, they had at early times very, high rates of star formation and so um, they produced a lot of stars and their black holes are heavier in mass than a, a typical qu uh, quiescent galaxy like the Milky Way. So the, the, the thing is that when you, you look at you know farther on you know back in time there were um, those type of galaxies those compact galaxies were more um, more frequent to see so you, you, you've seen them you, you could see them, you could see more of them. But instead, if you look, you know, like closer to us, there were, till they found this galaxy, there were none of this galaxy. So what do we think that it happened is that those, you know, those very compact galaxies and ma uh, very massive, at, uh, you know, like in, in very far away and, and, and back in time, is that they evolved by accreting some, you know, smaller systems. And that's why they become like bigger, and um, so you know, like in in the sense of being like fluffier. So they increase in size, although they didn't increase that much in mass. Interesting, interesting. So when we see a galaxy like NG twelve seventy seven today, and I look at it and I say, "Oh, you look small. You look like you kind of look like a." baby version of the Milky Way, but your black hole is enormous. Your black hole is a thousand times as massive as ours is. Um, can I ask, how do we think it got to be that way? So um, it's not like the Milky Way, it's, it's more massive than the Milky Way. So that's, that's, that's the thing, that it's, it's, very, partic it's very particular in, in the way that it's massive and it's very, very compact. I see. So, so when I look at you and I say, "Oh, it's smaller. It's only smaller in size. It isn't smaller in mass. In fact, it's larger in mass. So it's more concentrated." So, okay. like, what we think that happened to this particular galaxy is that the second, the second step of accreting, you know, like uh, less massive systems, didn't happen. So it just stayed, stayed in in the in the more uh, primitive. Uh, form of, of of the galaxies, so we think that galaxies form in like very quickly, and then you know they they grow by accreting other another systems. So this galaxy just 
just formed and there was no accretion of, of the smaller system. So it stayed like 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 that, like just, you know, like very kind of primitive way in a, in a primitive form. I see. So it's almost like uh, it's almost like this galaxy is fossilized in a sense that it it existed in this state early on and then not a whole lot, even though it's in a very rich galaxy cluster right now, relatively close to the center of that galaxy cluster. It's just not uh, it just hasn't evolved all that much since it first took that shape, likely many billions of years ago. Exactly. Yeah. In, in fact, being being in a, in a galaxy cluster, it kind of prevented it to grow because the, all the galaxies were moving so fast that it couldn't like grab anything to, you know, like basically feed. Interesting. Well, so maybe maybe I'll have to change my opinion on how uh, maybe I'll have to change my opinion about this galaxy. That is not an oddball that perhaps it's just um, it's like a Peter Pan of galaxies. It's something we see far away and, you know, we don't see very many of them close by. But when you see something far away, you're seeing the brightest, the most easily seen objects far away. So we know they exist far away. They're not as bright anymore, but they should still exist. And this is just a leftover relic from an early time. Since the, the discovery of this, this galaxy... There have been like some other candidates for, you know, being also um, what we call relic galaxies. I think that's probably there. We are about maybe 10 ish of those galaxies. Oh, wow. So it's so there are there are a few of them, but it's not like this is the only one. This is this is perfectly fine. And I need to stop thinking of it as weird and just start thinking of it as, hey, everyone has their own unique origin story. And this galaxies is probably related to these luminous compact galaxies from the early universe. It's just this is what they look like today. Yeah. So, you know, when when you basically age, you know, like a, a galaxy will become redder because, you know, you get all the more massive, they, um, they burn the, 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 the hydrogen faster, sorry, and uh, basically they die uh, faster too. And um, that's why, you know, like with age, uh, they become redder. That's how, you know, this galaxy looks like now, just like a reddish, very compact, but yeah. All right. Well, I like that a lot. We have been, uh, we have gone way over our normally scheduled time here, but we had so many fascinating things to talk about that I'm really glad we did. This has been a fantastic conversation from my perspective, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And I hope everyone else at home has enjoyed tuning in. Uh, Mireya, I'd like to ask you before we say goodbye to you, are there any final messages you would like to uh you would like to leave our listeners with hmm. Hmm. just I, I would like them to uh you know understand the, like that uh, science um, astronomy works in in that way we are like just just giving like small steps and trying to understand how things happen so you know like be patient and just give us 
money <laughs> so we can, you know, pay our uh, ourselves and do our research. I mean, I, I think that's really wonderful. You know, this is this is one of the most essentially human endeavors we could take, which is to say it requires all of us working together, investing in something together to make these advances happen. We are a community, and I would love to see everyone who's interested and curious, I would love to see everyone share in the joy and wonder of of discoveries like this. And I think your willingness to come on this show and talk to me and the general public like this is is one of the great ways of ambassadorship that we can make this happen. I mean, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in as well. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. You can find us at startswithabang.com and you can check out our SoundCloud page for our podcasts going all the way back to 2015 when we first started doing them. So I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters at the $5 level a month and above. So thanks go to Thomas Moore, Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Samir Kumar, Matt Conroe, Chris Shaw, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Sean Foley, Pete Smoyer, Chris Jakuta, Stefan Bernegger, Pierre Franson, John Van Balaguyan, Charles Buchanan, Dominic Turpin, Hellbender, Punitive Expedition, Pavel Zuzelski, Rob Hansen, Pedro Texera, George Turch, Vlad Pashkovsky, Sergei Gordienko, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Jens Kroger, Joseph Dvorak, Laird Whitehill, Randall Sleeve, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Jerry Wilterding, Sean Foley, Flo, John Cruzura, Mark Armstrong, Marcelo Barnaba, Jose Enrique, Rafael Wojcik, Brian Terry, Danny, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Philip Francis, Neil Flood, James Bryson Hyatt, Adam Robinson, Chuck Dannon, Paul Lester, Lalina Manenti, Gabriel Nader, Sam Serzakian, Jeff Renike, Rushin Shah, Inga Strumke, Alan Parikh, William Blair, Jason Lutri. Trell, Paulina Barron, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffiths, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tom Van Scotter, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Rich Weigel, James Nance, Tomas Walgren, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benhead, David Taschioni, Radek Nesbida, and Brainwise. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more starts with a bang. <laughs> <laughs>